Welcome to the DMZ America podcast, where two cartoonists, one from the left and one from the right, discuss the issues and topics of the day. Coming to you from the left, I'm cartoonist Ted Rall. And I'm cartoonist Scott Stantis coming to you from the right. And so today, Scott, uh, we've been talking, you and I, offline, as they say in corporate parlance, about an article that ran in the New York Times uh, earlier well, earlier this week, or uh, I guess you could say early last week at this point, um, that's titled, Democrats Lost the Most in Midwestern Factory Towns, report says, and the subhead reads, the party's struggles in communities that saw declines in manufacturing and union jobs and healthcare could more than offset its gains in metropolitan areas. We're going to talk a little bit, we're going to talk about this, and then later on in the podcast, we're going to talk about the crisis over Taiwan. But Scott, tell us a little bit about this article and uh, why we should care and uh, why- Well, I was actually thinking of a different, different article from the New York Times. It is insufferably long. Ted and I read it, so you don't have to. Wait, what? Uh, talk, talk about David. I just Shorn teed up Hall. the wrong piece. Should we start this? You, you, you kind of did. Oh my god, <laughs> that's okay. Uh, that's okay. Okay, hold on. I, no, no, no. It's not okay. I, we that dovetails. No, it dovetails well uh, into what we're about to talk about. So okay. no, no, we're not stopping recording. We're we're going to show must keep go going. on. We're both late for church. Okay, all right. Let's we're like the Donner later. Party. We're just going to keep going until we can't go on anymore, and then we'll eat. We'll the, eat each other. I, I, I think, I don't know who's going to get the better end of this deal. Probably you, because I need to lose some weight these days. But anyway, oh, I, right. I always have to. Anyway, so David Shore, uh, columnist, um, no, not a columnist, uh, a pollster, a- analyst, worked a uh, deep uh, background for the for the Obama campaign. He gets ostracized. He posts, he has the temerity during the uh, George Floyd protests, which got violent. He had the temerity to tweet that statistics show that violent protests hurt the Democratic Party, that they reflect badly on and that uh, swing voters, I guess, what are there, Ted, nine of them left in the country? But it does affect swing voters and give them the article. Honest to God, people, this thing goes on forever, uh, but it makes the same points that Ted has been making, particularly, and I've glummed on to them, frankly, in the last five to seven years, which is that the Democratic Party has, has totally fucked itself over by by embracing corporate America, Wall Street, and the money and the easy money interests versus the people it claimed to protect, which is you know steel town, small town, working class people, and I can tell you, and Ted can, Ted being from Dayton can tell you just better than I. But we, my wife and I, just did a, a tour, I mean, a, a car trip across the country, mostly across the, the Rust Belt, and there's Trump signs everywhere. Because Guess it's what? called the Rust Belt. <laughs> yes, but Trump sees them. He doesn't help them. I mean, that, that's not the not signs. He sees no. He sees the he sees the people. Yeah, he sees the people, and so and as he calls them, the beautiful, empty, rusted factories that were once there. But yes. he's not wrong, really. No, no. But the thing is, how the Democratic Party has turned its back on the people that, for decades, it built the party on and made it the success and the behemoth it was. Well, there was a, I mean, there was a, there was a, there was an alliance, right? Uh, you know, the, the post-war democratic alliance was big labor, uh, Southern blacks, uh, and, uh, and, and of course, uh, working class people and the new left in the 60s. But that, that coalition fractured after Watergate. And, uh, and so they, they went in a new direction and they started to uh, get 
donations from corporations and Wall Street and so on. And that sort of meant they couldn't really uh, still be in bed with big labor and big labor became small labor. Um, people don't really care about them anymore. I think it's like last time I checked, 8% of American workers yeah. uh, still belonged to a union. I mean, when you and I were kids, it was closer to a third. Um, oh, yeah, I think even more. Yeah. So and of course, it you know, it, it really did have a, you know, unions really did lift all boats in terms of wages and benefits for a long time, because even if you didn't work in a union shop, your employer was competing with union shops for employees. So what happened? I mean, why why did the Democratic Party? I mean, you could have had it both ways. You could have urban liberals and working class uh, folk from Dayton. Well, that's true where I'm from. Uh, you know, Bernie Sanders argues. And look, I think it's like any perfect storm. There's always several arguments. Uh, there's several causes. But his argument, which I think is pretty compelling and worth talking about, is, is, the, is the donation model. I mean, you know, it's sort of like in foreign policy, the U.S. makes deals with dictators because it's just easier. You know, you do a handshake with Saddam Hussein and pretty much everyone in Iraq has to do what he says, uh, you know, deal with the, with the president of France. He has to get approval from parliament and a bunch of other people. So it's not the same. And in the same way, uh, you know, Democratic, the DNC thought it was just easier to get big blocks of donations like, hey, I can get $10 million from Goldman Sachs as opposed to, you know, getting like Bernie Sanders, millions of donations for $28 each, which by the way, back then was also really hard because it, you had to do it by mail. Now it's not so hard. It comes in by PayPal, but it's, uh, you know, back then it was hard. So they switched to this big donor model uh, that, the, the, you know, they saw the Republicans raking in the cash and they were like, oh, we could do that too. And so that, you know, but the problem is once they crawled into bed with Wall Street, you know, Wall Street was like, well, we're diametrically, we have opposing interests to labor, obviously. So, you know, you can't, you can't marry us both. So you have to have one or the other. <laughs> so it comes down to money. I'm shocked in politics. That does, Ted, come on. I know it's, you know, it's, come like, on. it's like the dumbest of all arguments ever is, you know, we really have to get the money out of politics. It's like, okay, well, when you get the money out of society, maybe you can get the money out of politics. <laughs> when capitalist capitalism ends, that's when you're getting money out of politics. Yeah, even so, socialism I mean, wouldn't solve that problem. You'd have to go to the new communist era where the state withers away and we're all living communally. I mean, I don't understand. I'm living down here. I live in Alabama. And just this, this Trump love, we gave one of the highest percentages of the vote in the 2020 election to Trump. I think it was 68% of the vote. Um, and you go, and the people who are voting here, this Alabama is one of the poorest states in the union. Uh I mean, this, this, this guy's not going to help them, but they look at the Democratic Party as their enemy now. I mean, well, they because really, they I mean, do not, they just do not. Look, I grew up in the Rust Belt. Um, you know, NAFTA was the, you know, look, I like to say that the Great Flood of 1913 was the peak of Dayton, you know, and it's been all downhill ever since. I think that's actually pretty true. And uh, so it's not like this is all the Democrats' fault, but what happened was that increasingly uh, throughout the 1970s and 80s, as globalization and uh, the steel, you know, Japanese steel industry dumping steel onto, uh, the, onto the American market, that really hurt Ohio and, and Pennsylvania and other Rust Belt states. Um, you know, it's, it, there was just like this, uh, this move toward embracing free trade agreements. Free trade used to be a Republican thing exclusively, and then Democrats glommed onto it. It's a bipartisan thing now. And people where I lived, lost their jobs in droves. 
And, you know, that by itself isn't enough necessarily to make people change political parties to from Democrat to Republican. But it was the fact that year after year, decade after decade, there was no sense that what had happened to them and the hollowing out of their cities, you know, the hillbilly elegy argument was even you know, an issue for the Democratic Party. That is something that they even thought about, that someone like Bill Clinton cared about. And meanwhile, you had Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton literally arguing in public, in you know, that NAFTA and the World Trade Organization were good because even though we were losing jobs in America, people in Mexico, I fuck you not, we're getting more jobs. And, you know, like we don't live in Mexico. We live in the United States. I don't think the president of Mexico argues that like what, you know, us doing better in the U.S. is good for Mexicans. He doesn't argue that. And because he's not an idiot, but the Clintons were. And oh. they helped drive the, you know, a lot of Democratic voters into the arms of the GOP. And that may be true, but I'm going to argue in favor of free trade as that it does create peace. That it does, if you have some place, if you can create a factory outside of China, um, say, you know, someplace in Africa, someplace in Latin America, then you've created a, 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 an environment that exclude, means that there won't be armed res, uh, resurrection. Or, well, you're revolution. improving the economy. So, of course, that's a good thing. Yeah. For so them. So you have, but you're right. It does. It definitely hurts the United States. Um and you have yeah. to have a solution for these people. You have to have job retraining. You have to increase the safety net. You have to encourage people to go to college and, and pay for it. You have to give people a soft landing. If you throw people out of a moving car and they survive, they're going to be pissed at you. Right. And so so the Democratic Party now, and again, what, um, what David Shore argues is the Democratic Party, this is their chance, period. Right now, they have the White House, the Senate, and the House. And I don't understand why they're not shoving this crap through. Well, he was um, arguing, though, but he like so sure, like I'm just I was reading up on this, you know, after I, after my awesome uh, tee up at the beginning of the, of, the, <laughs> of the episode here about. So David Shore, um, there's there's actually several shores in public life. So I should say David Shore is a 28 year old political data and analyst who worked for Obama. And uh, he tweeted out a paper that basically researched and said exactly what you said, Scott, that here's what he said in his tweet. Post MLK assassination race riots reduced Democratic vote share in surrounding counties by 2%, which was enough to tip the 1968 election to Nixon. That was a very tight election. Nonviolent protests increased Dem vote, mainly by encouraging warm elite discourse and media coverage. So in other words, violent protests decrease the Dem vote is what he said. And I think I've seen similar things. He was fired uh, by because what he tweeted was viewed as being anti-Black, basically, uh, because the protests were Black Lives Matters protests. And, um, and, he, and he was seen as being uh, out of, you know, as, as expressing anti-Blackness. Uh, and so that's why he was. But he wasn't. He was strictly, you know, as I'm sure in his mind, these are facts. These are statistics. These are numbers. They don't lie. They're not black or white. They're just numbers. And um, and he gets ostracized for this, for having the temerity to say. Uh, and granted, it was during the heat and passion of that movement. Yeah, this um, was in May 2020. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, people were plenty pissed off. And so, I mean, I but too bad i mean facts are facts and i mean that's i mean we've, we've well it's a ridiculous this. reason to fire someone i mean of you know, course it's i mean well, i think there's no fucking doubt that he should not have been fired for that and and that his former employers were morons 
who were yeah. his, was that the New York Times or who was? Th- let's see who this was. This was. Nothing's more interesting than listening to people look at the internet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I believe it was the New York Times. Shocking. Yeah. They do like to, they do like to fire you, don't they? For no apparent reason. They, well, don't forget folks, uh, listeners, they actually did fire uh, two cartoonists for a cartoon they neither of them drew. Or even knew anything about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, I know. Strange, but true. For the All... first time in history, a cartoonist was fired for a cartoon he or she did not draw. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like at this point, I don't even know, like, I don't even know what I say. I guess soon cartoonists will be fired for work that is not cartoons. We will be fired when someone at NASA screws up a satellite launch or something. It's like, <laughs> Shit, hey, why, <laughs> why the hell not? They fire. I mean... <laughs> They give the Pulitzer to non-cartoonists, the cartoonist Pulitzer for non-cartoonists. So why not fire us for like, you know, there's a typo in the Dayton Daily News. Ted, you're fired. (laughs) It's like, exactly. Like, you know, someone at a, someone at uh, got the order wrong at the takeout at Wendy's in Omaha. Ted, you're fired. Like, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's crazy. So. Um, okay, so we've talked about this issue a lot, but the Democratic Party has fucked itself over. In a okay, so what should way. they? What should they do? Okay, so if you're, I mean, I think course, obviously, like I'm, I do have to say, we do have to say there is something always, and I know anyone listening to this would say, like, why should we care what Scott, who's a Republican, cares about? You know, is he really okay. here to help? <laughs> yeah, I am, and I'll tell you why. Because I like okay. a viable political debate. That's why Ted and I are friends, and why we talk daily um regardless of recording it or not um you know um but i i also defer to ted to look but what you what if i was in charge of the democratic party i'm just talking about i came up in politics i wanted you know my first job my first career choice was to work in politics many years ago so it still fascinates and if i was a democrat if I, i would say trump gave you the model going forward go go all in we want universal health care. You know, you're the Democrat. Balls party. to you the want, wall. Balls to the wall. You want universal health care. You want, um, you know, um, you want police reform or defund. You want to um, tax the rich at a much higher rate. And, you know, and, you know, you, I don't have a problem with that, but they don't do that. They think they can still nuance. Do you remember the adage? I think it was Carville said it during the uh, 92 election. When they said we didn't we didn't break down the door, we picked the lock. Mm. And that's a good analysis of the kind of politics that the Democratic Party seems to fall into. Oh, and the last element is union. Hell, yes, we have to reunionize the country. Well, that's going to take some serious. I mean, I don't even know how we're going to how we're going to do that at this point. I mean, there's there's laws that actually make it like almost impossible to unionize now. Um, you know, you it is those laws down. Many of them are states. Many, many of them are right to in right to work states. And you have a federal law that knocks all of them to, down. You could do that. I mean, I just don't think that. But I don't I think in reality, you know, the, the Democratic Party, as it's currently constituted, is not going to do that. I mean, look, they're arguing that they have to kowtow to the Joe Manchins and Kirsten Cinemas of the world, um, that they have too many. Uh, you know, their 50 vote uh, majority in the Senate, or I should say half, whatever you'd call that, have in the Senate. Well, I guess it is a majority because of the vice president. Um, but it, it's not a real majority because they have a bunch of moderates there that they have to kowtow to and they have to get their votes. Um, they, If they go too far left, they won't get those votes. They won't get anything done. That's their argument. I mean, I think they're wrong. I think they're wrong. They're not getting anything done now. Look at this. They just want, they want to pass an infrastructure bill, a 
fucking infrastructure bill. That's money that you go to Ted Rawl, Republican of Dayton. And you say, here's a check you can pass out and you can put it, print it out big and put it on styrofoam or foam core and hold it up and hand it to, you can have a school built in your district named after Ted Rawl Elementary School. I like that idea. I, um, I like, well, you got to get elected first, pal. Yeah, yeah. Well, as a, I, repu- as a Republican. As a Republican. <laughs> I mean, Which, Lord knows the Democrats probably won't have me uh, because I'm too far left for them. The um, the thing is, okay, so the I think the problem here, though, is, look, there's two infrastructure bills. The infrastructure infrastructure bill, Republicans would vote for, uh, right? I mean, that's not the issue. It's really the, it's the, uh, you know, I mean, they might knitter about this and that, but they would pass something. The, you're not the the issue is the social infrastructure the social spending bill the Democrat, the Republicans want no part of that at all and so you know they're not even going to give them one vote but then I would say too goddamn bad we run the house the Senate and the, and the, and the White House we're going to pass it why aren't they where 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 are the where are the Democratic Party balls where'd that go well again they I mean they belong to uh, <laughs> Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin apparently God, they're in a, they're in Al Gore's lockbox. Um, it's crazy. So, okay, we're gonna, we've talked about this enough, I think, but we just, I, mean, I just, when we'll talk about it some more, it just, so that's why it frustrates me. I, you know what frustrates me, Ted? Here, let me finish this. Why a Republican? Why a conservative? Why would you give a shit? Because I actually care about good politics. I'm always impressed by smart politics and, or even politics that you kind of stumble into, like, I, like I mentioned, Donald Trump. You know what? He'd say something preposterous and then be called on it. He doubled down on it. And the left would go nuts and, oh, I can't believe he did that. And he'd win. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the thing is, though, I mean, getting back to the article that, you know, I incorrectly tweet uh, mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, <laughs> I, I think there is something there, though, in what, you know, you're saying. I mean, I think, look, the issue is that the Demo- for the Democratic Party, their challenge is that they have become a coastal urban elite party uh, for like highly college educated um, you know, yuppies, and that for uh, working class and uh, poor people in flyover country, uh, the Democratic Party is becoming less and less relevant. They can't relate to it culturally, much less politically. And the thing is, the demographics don't really support. I mean, you know, there was that whole argument 30 years ago that there was a Democratic, an emerging Democratic majority written by two guys whose names I can't remember, um, uh, who argue that because of immigration trends and so on, Republicans would be consigned to permanent minority status, but that hasn't happened. And the thing is, Republicans are keeping their heads above water and winning elections because culturally they're finding ways to relate to the people in the forgotten hinterlands over, you know, in other words, where most Americans live. Well, and I can say that they use um, fear uh, in a large, in large measure. And I, you know, I don't, I find their tactics repulsive because I happen to like intelligent political debate, but they have, you know, the sphere of the other, you know, you have Fox news, they're coming to take your stuff or you know, right. and that, that can be everything from your privilege to, you know, your property. Yeah. Your um, health, ins- your health insurance, your right to choose your doctor. Yeah. Yeah, all that and, stuff. And but so I mean, de- look, stuff. Democrats play on. I mean, look, you, you you can't ask for people not to use what works, right? I mean, you you there. The thing is, I think Democrats have to find a way to, uh, you know, th- there's there's battles that they really should not fight. Like for example, I think I think gun control is a big loser. 
Um, I, I think it's like one of those things they just shouldn't bother with. Um, it's in the it's in the Constitution. If you want to fight gun violence, then do it like locally in the cities like Chicago, where you know you're the cartoonist. Um, do it, it do work. it there first, but in, in the in the state maybe. But it's just not like it's not the hill that Democrats should die on. I don't think. My take on gun control, real quick, just a side issue because you brought it up, is, has always been, yeah, it's in the Constitution. You feel this way, you feel this strongly, you think that there's that overwhelming number of people who want to control guns, then amend pass it. it. Then amend it. Amend the Constitution. Yeah, no, I think, and I think, honestly, we've talked about this before, and you agreed. I don't think that uh, if the Constitution, and we should really have a Constitution that looks like it was written yesterday. And if we had a Constitution that was, if we had had the revolution yesterday, there's no way we would have, uh, you know, a second amendment as currently stated in, in that constitution. There's just no way. No, I, I think you're right. But what's funny is when I talk to my friends, uh, my, especially my, my, my lefty friends and my comfortably situated <laughs> suburban democratic friends and say, amend the constitution. Well, you can't do that. We can't do that. We can't fight that against the NRA. And I'm going, well, then you don't have the numbers you think you have, or you say you have. Right. Well, numbers aren't always everything. Most Americans are anti-free trade, but and yet here we are. You know, they're also anti-free speech, but that's another. Yeah. Shut up. Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so Taiwan, China, China. Are we going to have a, see a war there? Um, well, so you know, this is a a topic that I've actually been very interested in for a long time, How and come? I think. Um, well, you know, because, uh, you know, I was married to a Taiwanese woman. And, oh, okay. um, and so uh, I read up a lot about it. I don't think most Americans even know the difference between Taiwan and Thailand. Uh, they don't know, they don't understand the, um, you know, the how Taiwan's status or what Taiwan status is or anything about it. You know, I could do give a quick little tutorial. It's, it's actually kind of fascinating. So go. You, you look bored. Okay. Um, bullet point. Bullet point. Okay. Bullet point. So when, so the communist, so in, in 1949, when the communist uh, revolution took place in China under Mao Zedong, he came to power by defeating the nationalist army under Chiang Kai-shek. There was a civil war that had dragged on for decades. And finally, the communists prevailed, uh, marched into Beijing, and uh, Chiang Kai-shek and his nationalist army fled to Taiwan, um, which is an island off the coast of China. Um, Taiwan had been a part of China on and off over the course of thousands of years. Whenever the empire was strong, it was part of, it was in, like Tibet, it was part of the empire. Whenever the empire was weak, it retreated, and they sort of, and the central authorities abandoned Taiwan. So Taiwan sort of had de facto autonomy. At the end of World War II, the U.S. had like this uh, anti-colonialist policy, and they said, they told the Taiwanese uh, after the, they the Japanese occupation was defeated, that they would be allowed to have an independent country um, free of interference. But in 1949, four years later, when Chiang Kai-shek fled, uh, the U.S. actually uh, brought used American ships to bring Chiang Kai-shek's forces over to Taiwan. The, the uh, Chiang Kai-shek was a ruthless dictator. They walk, They marched in, overthrew the uh, independent Taiwanese government, uh, murdered all of the journalists, uh, intellectuals, and uh, political leaders uh, of the independent Taiwan state and killed them in, I mean, murdered them. And uh, basically they put them in gunny sacks and threw them into a harbor. It's called the 228 incident, February 28th, 1949. It's like uh, still a national holiday. It's like their 9-11. And 
Anyway, Chiang Kai-shek ruled Taiwan for decades until his death. And then remarkably, um, his after he and his party, the Kuomintang, the KMT, um, after he died, uh, there was a peaceful uh, transition to democracy, a very vibrant democracy on Taiwan. And uh, and so and that's kind of the system that prevails now where there's two parties, the DPP, uh, Democratic Progressives, which is sort of also known as the Green Party, which is sort of the left leaning, they would be the equivalent of the Democrats uh, versus the KMT, which uh, is uh, you know, sort of more aligned ironically with China, with um, more willing to entertain the idea of reunification with China, although that's all on paper. The diplomatic status of Taiwan is very strange. Um, basically, uh, Taiwan is not recognized as a country, but just by like a few, like maybe 12, like very small countries around the world, like, like island nations, like Vanuatu and places like that. I mean, basically a Taiwan passport is as close to useless as a passport can be. Um, and meanwhile, so the seat of the UN belongs to China. On paper, the Taiwan government is the Republic of China and they claim to be the legitimate government in exile of, of, of China. And they plan someday to come back and kick the communists' asses and take over the mainland again. But obviously that's never going to happen. That's just on paper. Man, are they patient. They're very patient. And so meanwhile, the, the, you know, there's been a lot of posturing over the years um, you know, bet between China, which, you know, look, the Chinese would like to get Taiwan back the way that they got Macau and Hong Kong back from, their, from the British uh, you know, mandate. But they... Uh, Obviously, they know that they're risking war with the United States because the U.S. has heavily armed and supported um, diplomatically Taiwan over the years, and it would look really bad if we were to just let the Chinese be taken, uh, the Taiwanese be taken over by the mainlanders. Um, so, on the other hand, uh, there's a sense on the, the the Chinese are really in a mega nationalist mode these days. And um, and so they're riling things up, and uh, they're in President Xi is definitely uh, you know saber rattling, sending uh, airplanes into what Taiwan considers its airspace or its air uh, defense zone, and um, and the Taiwanese are heavily armed. But obviously, if the Chinese chose to invade Taiwan, they could and they would prevail, um, and you know we would be looking, so we would be staring down the uh, the barrel of World War Three because we'd, we're talking about two heavily armed nuclear powers with intercontinental ballistic missiles. So it's a scary thing, actually. Well, what's likelihood now, as you, as you see it? I mean, you've clearly studied it. I mean, is this, I mean, should the United States get involved in this? We already are. I mean, we already we are. Involved. Involved. Let's not be naive or stupid because you know, we're neither. Uh, but let's, um, should the U.S. step up and send, uh, you know, what is the Pacific fleet there to the Straits of Taiwan? I mean, what, 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 what are, what are the next steps? And yeah, I mean, that's been, that was the traditional cold war uh, approach was to fly American fighter jets uh, near the Chinese border to sort of just say, Hey, we're here. We care about Taiwan. It's all posturing. And the problem is you can get, you know, you, every time you do that, you can end up with a Tonkin Gulf incident type scenario, you know, even though that, didn't actually happen, but you can just end up, you know, like for example, there was even an incident, um, which you might remember about 15 years ago where a Chinese uh, MiG was uh, was intercepted by an American fighter jet 
and the, they, the two planes came so close together that they clipped each other's wings and the American was forced to land on Chinese territory uh, because otherwise he would have crashed and died in the, in the, in the, and it was, uh, and so fortunately he was ultimately released and the plane was given back and everything was negotiated. But I think everybody knows this is like, this is trouble, right? We really just don't. So if we escalate, there's the danger of things spinning out of control. If we don't do anything, there's the danger that we are perceived as not, we're signaling to the Chinese that we don't care about Taiwan. It's a no-win situation, really. Um, I mean, I think what I would, I'm sure what they are, I'm sure there's lots of back-channel communications between the White House and Beijing, and they're trying to bring this in for a soft landing. And it might just be a conversation as simple as Xi telling Biden, hey, uh, you know, listen, dude, this is for... This is for domestic consumption. Don't worry. I have no intentions uh, against Taiwan. Um, or it may not be like that. It, uh, I don't think they want to, the Chinese intend to invade anytime soon. But I think the Chinese do think if everything is right and proper with the world, Taiwan will be part of China within 50 years. Yeah, well, I've been predicting that for a while. I always thought, especially when... Um... Oh, golly. Uh, the, the, the regime that uh, followed Mao uh, and really, uh, oh, I, I can see him and I can't. Deng Xiaoping. Deng Xiaoping. When Ping kind of liberalized the markets and became a more capitalist driven and yeah. finance driven. Late economy, 70s. Thought, wow, that's this. Now's the time for those two countries to merge. That seems like a good marriage. Um, but I mean, would you say here's uh, this is the question I always have, and I seem like such a peacenik when I do this, but but it's the only litmus test to me that makes any sense. Ted, you and I are fathers of sons, and would we be willing to sacrifice our kids? Would we be willing to have our kids literally killed um, to defend Taiwan? That's the question we'd be facing under this, right? I mean, well, I mean, I mean, I, I think we know the answer would be no, and for both of us, and certainly. Um, I think the answer would be no for most Americans. I mean, it's uh, look. I have I have some you know, I have some familial ties to Taiwan, and I, I care about it. And uh, you know, it's my 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 dead father in law was a big Taiwan independence activist, um, so I do care about it. Uh, but it's uh, no, <laughs> just no. <laughs> I mean, look. I mean, I remember having conversations with my father in law where he would say. You know, you know, when is the U.S. going to give us independence? When is the U.S. going to, uh, you know, let us be a, a, a sovereign state? And I said, and I always would say, like, look, it doesn't work that way. You have to be willing. The Taiwanese people have to be willing to fight for their independence themselves and maybe die. And then the world might care. You know, that's how this works. Look at East Timor. Um, they had to fight in little tiny place. They had to fight and die for independent status. Um, and that's how it goes. I mean, you know, you don't get independence for free. It's not given to you like a, you know, like a, like a coupon. You have now, to I do wonder, because the places you've mentioned, uh, Macau, Hong Kong, Taiwan, East Timor, all four of them have awesome flags. Oh, yeah, that's really I wonder how much of that plays into this. Well, Taiwan's flag is <laughs> technically the old mainland Chinese flag, as you know. Right. Yeah, right. It's mostly red, um, uh, has but has a quadrant in the where our stars are, and they have one big sun. Yeah, I think that is, is that in reference to Sun Yat Sen, the 
No, right. it's it's not because sun doesn't mean sun <laughs> in Chinese. Okay. That was just his name. It's just a coincidence. Okay. Yeah. I'll have to look up like why the, being why the flag. Here we can look can up the that. meaning of the flag. Yeah, I don't know. Well, that's another look up things on the internet thing. Um, but I do think, um, you know, I mean, I have long thought this was one of those, like this is talked about, this is one of those stories that people talk about more than anything will actually happen until now. I think now it's, it really is, it, is, it has the potential of being a, a real, I would say it's an official crisis. Well, because China's moves in the South Pacific, I mean, in this, I mean, South China Sea, uh, especially territory that's claimed by the Philippines, and they're building. I mean, this is, I mean, the balls of this is just amazing to me. They're literally building islands and saying ours. Yeah, yeah, new <laughs> I mean, land. It's like, look, look at we, look at what we, look what we found. Hey, it's this a ocean new China wasn't island. doing anything. It's just lying around, full of dumb fish. And the Filipinos, of course, are going, what the what? What are you guys doing? And so they're just encroaching more and more into that part of the world. And they've never been expansionist. Under Mao, they weren't an expansionist territory. They just solidified. The, yeah, there was China. a border. There were a couple of border skirmishes with North Viet, with Vietnam, northern Vietnam and with uh, over Kashmir with Pakistan. But little tiny incursions. We're not talking about like, you know, a full on invasion. And we're not talking about Russia and so Eastern Europe or any of that. Afghanistan. Yeah. You know, we're not, we're just talking about now this is very different. This is a China that we've never faced before. And this is an, and this, and I think, especially on the right, we're hearing more and more about the dangers of China. And I don't disagree with that. I really don't. They are clearly, they're not our friend. They've never, the thing about if you face an enemy like China, at least, you know, they will never be your friend. True. But then, of course, you also have to flip this around and look at things from the Chinese point of view. I think it's very important to always consider your enemy and like where or your adversary and where they're coming from. I mean, Taiwan historically has always been part of China, um, you know, on and off. Sure. But it's it was it, without a doubt, it's very closely tied to their sphere of influence. And so the now and, and, you know, in not that long ago, by Chinese standards, like less than 200 years ago, you know, the Western powers, including the, the Brits and the United States, carved up what they called the Chinese melon. And they uh, and, and they they deliberately addicted the people of, Ch of, of Taiwan, I'm sorry, of China to opium. And the opium wars were fought there. And so, you know, it was after it took them a good solid 150 years to dig out of what you know, this very evil take on colonialism did to them. And like now, and that's kind of like when they lost control of, of Taiwan, you know, Taiwan was uh, ceded to Japan after the Sino-Japanese War of 1870. And it became, so people think that Taiwan, to the extent that they think about Taiwan, they think that Taiwan was occupied by the Japanese in World War II, but that's not true. The Japanese got it as a territorial concession in 1870, and they still sort of coasted through and still had it at the end of World War II. And when they surrendered, they were forced to withdraw from Taiwan as part of the surrender accord. Um, so we kind of got Taiwan for free, um, or Taiwan sort of got itself back for free. But, you know, from there, imagine if the U.S. were that weak and we'd gone through 150 years of bullshit and being treated like shit by, say, other countries like Russia, China and India. And then we and we lost Alaska during that period or Hawaii. And we're like, well, that was always ours. That was an American state. And then it's like now we're strong again. 
And, you know, it's, that's still ours. Like we want that. We want that back. We want, we want the old U.S. the way it used to be. I think that would be a very powerful argument to many Americans. Mm. No, I'm, I'm, I'm considering what you're saying. It sounds, yeah, no, you're right. You're right. I mean, it was uh, very much like, um, I was just watching a thing. Of, uh, like, and by the way, Taiwan's a lot closer than Alaska and Hawaii are to the contiguous yeah. 48 states. Well, that was uh, Al Haig went to Margaret Thatcher during the outbreak of the Falkland uh, War, uh, Falkland Island War, and said, you know, it's a small island with a few of your people thousands of miles away, you know, do nothing right now. Let's see if diplomacy can work. And she says, oh, so like, like Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Exactly. Yeah. Or the Aleutian Islands or, you know, I mean, it's like, I mean, so it's like, it's part, it's part of, I mean, they do, you know, they do consider it part of sort of, you know, it's not even like a greater China. It's sort of like, it's like Tibet. Tibet's always been a vassal state of China and Taiwan wasn't even a vassal state. It was only enjoy, it only sort of enjoyed de facto independence for a very short time and it and before that historically it was kind of like no man's land where like fishermen and pirates lived um it just you know so like the so the chinese are like you know this is our business this is ours like we want it we want it back oh okay so okay let's brass tax president president rawl um well i mean i i think i would say look uh clearly uh, the time I think I think it's time to go big or go home. I think the U.S. should actually acknowledge Taiwan's independence. Um, it's it's a state. You know, I, I think that statelessness is a bad thing. Generally, uh, all yeah. over the world, there are places like, you know, obviously the Palestinians or the or the Kurds, people who are effectively stateless and live in places that they have. They're not in a real country and it's not good for progress. It's not good for them. They don't have representation in the international community. So, look, I, I think it's taking a risk, but you're just I think it's always good to acknowledge reality and get rid of fictions. And it's a yes. fiction. Thank the idea you. that there's two Thank you. There's two there's two Chinas. There's not two Chinas. There's one China and one Taiwan. And Taiwan's yeah. been on its own for so long. At this point, I kind of feel like the Chinese let too much time pass to really like reassert their their desire to take it. They, they're distinct, different cultures at this point. Uh, and if they want to, you know, it's like almost like North and South Korea. It's hard to imagine them coming back together at any point in the future. Can you, um, I mean, would you move troops or, or at least naval um, you know, aircraft carrier destroyers closer to Taiwan, just to send yeah, a message. To I would. Yeah, I would. I mean, I, I don't think I would go into the, into the Taiwan Strait because that's needlessly provocative and you could end up with an accident, you know, accidental missile yeah. firing or something like that. But definitely you want to be positioned so that you're able to respond if something happens. All right. Okay. All right. That's all that one. Thinking. All right. What about, what about you? Is that you would do the same? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I've always felt like, and I'm, I'm with you. I hate fictions like that. I hate this kind of bullshitty, well, they're a country, but they're not. And we recognize them, but we don't, you know, it's like, he's my boyfriend, but he's not. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's one or the other. And so, yeah, you just, you, you, but you don't, you also don't play their game. If it's Taiwan, you don't say, we're not going to recognize you as China. You're not fucking China. You're not right. it. You, you, you're you're yeah. Taiwan. We'll recognize you as that. Is that, will that work for you? 
And I yeah. suspect that they'd say yes. Yeah, I think I think they're looking for it. What the Taiwanese want is a guarantee that we would defend them militarily. And I'm not sure we can go that far. That's that's the crux. I mean, like you said, are, are we willing to die for them? Maybe not. I think I think we have to know that they're willing to die for them first. There it is. Right there, folks. Exactly it. Are they okay. willing to die for their own interests? And if they're not, then I'm sure shit not going to send my son. Yeah, look, look, I mean, look, we just like uh, thousands of American troops died for the uh, Hamid Karzai Ashraf Ghani uh, Afghan government, but they weren't willing to, you know, their troops weren't willing to die for them. So, well, you look at the South Vietnamese who were not willing to die to defend their government when the uh, peace accord fell apart in 1975. So, right. you know, if, if you're not willing to die, if they're not willing to die, then why the hell should we? Yeah, that, that is how I look at it, too. All right. Okay. So great, Scott, as, as always, it was fun. And yeah, uh, I enjoy these. I do. Me, too. I always look forward to them. All <laughs> right. Well, I hope uh, everybody else feels the same way. Scott, where can they go in between DMZ America podcasts to find your work? Go to gocomics.com slash Scott Stantis or gocomics.com slash Prickly City to see my comic strip. Also, you can go to chicagotribune.com slash opinion and check out my work I do for them. A lot of local uh, Chicago and Illinois based cartoons, uh, but mostly go to, I can't say this enough, two of the best cartoonists in the world work there. Scott Stantis and Ted Rawl at Counterpoint. Dot com. Subscribe and support editorial cartooning, please. please. And how about you? Please do do that. And uh, when you do subscribe to Counterpoint, make sure you whitelist it if you have Gmail, because if not, it might go into your spam folder. Word to the wise. You can find me also at gocomics.com slash Ted Rall and also at Rall.com, R-A-L-L.com. And I'll just leave you with that for now. Scott, thank you very much. And I'll uh, see you next time. Uh, listen to you next time. And uh, we'll talk soon. Uh, everybody. Uh, have a good week. Talk to you soon. Ta-ta.